This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 579 with Nicole Lynn Lewis. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 579. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Nicole Lynn Lewis is a mom of four, a social entrepreneur, and the founder of the nonprofit Generation Hope. As a teen mother, she put herself through the College of William and Mary, starting as a freshman when her daughter was just three months old. She has been named a CNN hero and won the Roslyn S. Jaffe Award. She has appeared on CNN, NBC Nightly News, Good Morning America, and her journey has been covered in the Washington Post, Baltimore Sun, Teen Vogue, Chronicle for Higher Education, and others. Her book, Pregnant Girl, A Story of Teen Pregnancy, College, and Creating a Better Future for Young Families is out now. Oh my goodness, Nicole's story is going to open your eyes to what it's like to be a black teen mom in college, as well as all the ways our current college system is set up to ensure success only for its most privileged students. Listen in to hear Nicole share her mission to write Pregnant Girl in order to help society have a better understanding of teen pregnancy her experience going to college and living on campus as a black teen mom, why it's so critical that we stop hiding, shaming, and punishing teen parents by marginalizing them and taking resources from them, how to support the 25% of our college students who are very young parents, the stereotypes we hold against teen parents and the truths behind them, how precarious and isolating it is to be a teen mom in college and the toll it takes on mental health, how teen parents and students of color have to constantly prove their worth to get ahead in ways students of privilege never do, the racist systems and policies that keep parents of color from entering and graduating from college, and how her nonprofit Generation Hope supports college students financially and emotionally. And lastly, she's going to talk about why Pregnant Girl is a must-read for any teen mom and for anyone who carries privilege, which is me and it might be you. Oh my goodness, this was a special conversation. I'm so incredibly grateful to Nicole for all the ways she showed up with so much transparency and vulnerability, and also with so much hope around how we can do better in our college systems and support young families, young moms, young black moms, teen moms in this college system. So 
please listen with a critical ear to understand how you could potentially help this system that is not currently set up to ensure success for everyone. So with all that said, let's welcome Nicole Lynn Lewis to the Shameless Mom Academy. Nicole, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a powerful conversation. I already know. I'm so grateful for you for, first of all, sharing your story, writing a book about it, being willing to come and talk on shows like this. I just think that the stuff we're going to talk about today, I think are stories that women should have all the space in the world to share. So Mm -hmm. thank you in advance for being vulnerable and open and transparent. I already appreciate all of that about you. Oh, no, I'm thrilled to be sharing this story. And like you said, just so happy that we're having another conversation about it and to bring more awareness. So it's great. Absolutely. Before we dig into your book, can you tell us a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now? Yeah. So, you know, my full-time job is I'm a mother of five. (laughs) That might be two full-time jobs. Let's be honest. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, My youngest actually is is 10 weeks old. Um, What? Oh my gosh. I did not know that. How did we not cover this in the (laughs) pre-interview? Holy cow. Congratulations. Yeah. What's what's the range of all of them? Oh my gosh. So our oldest is 22 years old and she's just a couple months away from graduating from college. And she's the baby that I brought with me to college. So that's really been amazing to have that come full circle. Then we have an 11 year old, soon to be 12 year old. She's going into the seventh grade. And then our three boys are all under five. So we have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and then a 10 week old, all of our boys. So yeah, it's like every phase of adolescence and childhood going on in this house. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I am in absolute awe. Yeah. So that's my full-time job. And as you said, it keeps me very busy. And then I have, you know, another full-time job, which is running just an incredible organization called Generation Hope that is really kind of my life's work. And I'm just so excited about the work that we do. And we help teen moms and dads earn their college degrees in the DC metro area while also helping their kids get ready for kindergarten. And then we're also advocating for the needs and the experiences of student parents all across the country as well, and excited about that work too. And so, yeah, I do a lot of juggling, I think, between, you know, keeping all the balls in the air at home and making sure that Generation Hope is thriving, particularly over the last year, I felt very much like I'm juggling a lot of things between those two jobs. And then, you know, having trying to carve out time for myself doing the things that I love in between that, which is, you know, baking and hanging out with friends and traveling, which of course haven't been able to do over the last year, but trying to carve out some me time wherever I can. So yeah, it's a lot going on over here, but I'm most excited about, you know, the last year plus has been just devastating and incredibly hard, particularly for the families that we work with at Generation Hope. And that's been both inspiring to see their resilience, but also uh, challenging in many ways to make sure that we're meeting their needs and helping them weather the storm. But also I think this year plus as a mother has been really rewarding and has brought our family closer together to just, you know, we've been home, we've been more creative about how to find ways to have fun at home. And my husband built a fire pit. And, you know, so I think I'm most excited about the closeness that I have with my family right now. And I'm looking forward to figuring out how to, you know, retain that and make sure that we keep some of that as we hopefully at some point move into, you know, a better phase of things and we're out of COVID. Yeah, I totally agree. There's like been these little precious moments of magic or like periods of magic and phases um, that like you kind of want to bring with you. And Mm -hmm. that's been really special. And something I did not see coming when I heard that like schools were closing and the distance learning and all these things that I was thought were going to be absolutely impossible. And then there were some gifts that came out of it all. Yeah, exactly. Yes, absolutely. I want to dive into your book. So your book is called Pregnant Girl, a story of teen pregnancy, college, and creating a better future for young families. And this is all about your journey. And this is something, if you don't mind, can I tell you just a little bit about my background around this? Because I think that this is important because I think it's going to be relatable. So I grew up going to Catholic schools 
progressive schools, but Catholic schools in Seattle, which also a progressive city. Mm-hmm. And so in that environment, teen pregnancy was not embraced. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and you would hear stories about, and I went to really small schools and teen pregnancy was to my knowledge, not really happening. And, but you would hear stories periodically about women, classmates, young girls, and there was very much, I mean, like huge stigma. And also this like notion that if you were to find yourself in that situation, you would go away. Yes. And there was this like hiding, like you go away and then your life becomes this like thing over here, practically in a convent, maybe yeah. actually in a convent. Like, right. And so it was this very stigmatized, very hidden thing. And as I've interviewed women over the last almost six years now, what I've learned and women across the country and women from different that didn't go to private Catholic schools, I've learned that this is not how teen pregnancy is viewed and seen and stigmatized all over the place. And especially now. And so Mm. I'm so appreciative of people sharing their stories. And we actually had, do you know, Trudy LeBron? Are you familiar with her? No. She talked about her experience being a teen mom of two by the age of 16. And when she talked about that, she talked about which was really eye-opening to me. She talked about just kind of the prevalence of this and how in certain places and cities and areas that like, this is something that is where you don't go and hide. Instead, there's a culture built around this that supports these women and girls who need help and support and their Mm, babies. And then there's options to thrive. And so all that is for me to say like (laughs) kind of this perspective of where I've come from with this. And then also- how important it is to learn around women's experiences. And as you were a teen, what that looked like for you so that we can all have a better understanding and take away the stigma. So with all that, can you talk a little bit about your journey and then what inspired you to share your story so widely? Yeah. And I appreciate you sharing that because I do talk in pregnant girl about the fact that there definitely is this response. And particularly like when my mom was going to a Catholic school, right? Years ago, where if you became pregnant, you disappeared. She had a, a good friend yeah. of hers that happened and she never saw her again. And, and that was painful for her. And I'm sure it was painful for that young woman. So I wrote the book because I think most people think that they understand the issue of teen pregnancy, that they understand, uh, you know, what young moms are up against and how young people find themselves in that situation. And the reality is, is that most people really have no idea about teen pregnancy, all of the things and the factors that are at play in a young person's life when they find themselves in that situation. And understanding that much of what we know about teen pregnancy is really steeped in these stereotypes. And these stereotypes are really off in terms of the reality and what's happening out there and what's happening for young people and teen pregnancy as a whole. And so for me, I felt like there was an opportunity in my story as as a young mom, putting myself through college and the rarity that was, and really unfortunately still is. And also what I've learned in doing this work with young parents for the past 10 plus years helping them navigate higher education, I've really come to understand these larger systemic challenges that they face that we all have an opportunity to do something about. And so it was a both kind of an awareness building and a call to action that I wanted to share with the world. Yeah. And I love both pieces of that. Like they're both critical and you reference like why this was important for you to share. And I feel like it's important, but the significance is also really critical because when we look at the tools that we could give to a girl in the, who finds herself pregnant versus hiding her away. Mm. Like it changes the, her entire trajectory and her child. Like yeah. the ripples in there are just huge. Right. Yeah. And one thing that I really want us to think about is when we think about our general responses to young people who find themselves in the situation, like you said, one response is to hide this young woman away to keep her away from other young people as if it's as contagious as COVID-19. And then another response is to shame that Mm -hmm. young woman. And another response is to kind of yank whatever resources might've been there housing, you know, for example, right out from under that young woman. And what I really want us to think about is how are any of those responses productive? Like how do any of those things lead to a better 
outcome, not only for that young woman, but as you said, for her child. How are we setting the child up for success when we do those things? And so our general responses, our knee-jerk responses are these really negative, judgmental, and really hurtful ways. We're punishing. Of, it's like yeah, punishment. Exactly. Yeah. Punitive ways of responding mm-hmm. that have zero benefit to mother or child or father or child. And right. so I'm also, I talk about that in the book is we have to move to a place where these, our reactions and our responses are really ways to lead to a better outcome. You know, they can uplift a family. They can make sure that we're setting that, both that young person and their child up for success, because ultimately that's what we all should be striving for, right? Is to make sure that families are strong, that they are thriving and not just certain families, right? But all right, absolutely. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily, It's very digestible, and the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explained. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. So when most people hear the phrase college student, they don't think of young men and women who are also parents, even though they make up one quarter of the U.S. college population. This was a mind boggling <laughs> to me. So I'm thinking back to my college experience and I'm like, I don't recall that number. This is fascinating. And again, like another really critical piece of information that if we're looking at a quarter of our college students and how we can support them, holy cow, like- There needs to be a way bigger conversation. So can you talk about why we aren't talking about this and obviously why we need to? Yeah. I mean, there's nearly 4 million parenting college students enrolled in undergraduate programs across the country. 
And that doesn't include the millions of parenting students that have had to stop out. You know, they may have Mm -hmm. started and because of various obstacles that they experienced, had to stop out of college. So we also have a good number of parenting students that have are not enrolled right now that could re-enroll if they had the proper support. So it's a significant population. And I think, you know, we don't think about parenting students when we think about college students or we hear that phrase because, you know, higher ed really wasn't designed for this population. Higher ed, you know, I went to the College of William & Mary, one of the earliest colonial colleges in this country. And it was designed like many of those early colleges, which really kind of created the DNA for our higher ed system in this country. It was designed for white men. That's mm-hmm. really, you know, who it was designed for. And so the higher ed system that we know today is has been born from that. It has been structured, you know, to support that population. And, you know, we know that parenting college students are, you know, a good number are mothers. So they're women. They are more likely to be students of color. They are more likely to be low income students. You know, all of these populations that we know have been marginalized in the higher ed system, it doesn't matter how significant their numbers are, what we still, you know, kind of cater to in our education system, and particularly in higher ed is the white male. And so we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we're creating campuses that are family friendly, that are supportive of particularly parenting students, but all students and Mm -hmm. parenting students, as I said, intersect with all of these other populations that we need to be making sure we're paying attention to. So, and I will say, you know, even people working every day in higher ed, when we share with them that a quarter, nearly a quarter of college students are parenting or one in five college students, you know, is parenting their jaws drop on the floor. So it's an invisible population, even for many people who are working in this field. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I'm kind of flipping back to your story here. Can you talk, cause you made a couple of comments that I think make this important. Can you talk a little bit about your experience being a teen, not only a teen mom, but a young black teen mom in going to a school and working through finding your way through this institution that as you referenced so accurately was created for white men. Yeah. So I often refer to it both being a mother and being one of very few black students on my campus as a scarlet letter. You know, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to hide a pregnancy or a child, or at least for a long period of time. I became known on campus as the girl with the baby. You know, I stuck out like a sore Mm -hmm. thumb. My daughter was, you know, she was on campus with me. We lived on campus starting my sophomore year through my senior year. So she was always with me. We went everywhere together. If I was going to get mail or going, you know, to pick up something from a professor after hours, you know, she was right there with me. And she was a little under three months old when I started college. And so her first four years of life were on a college campus. And so I knew that I was different. I knew that there was a lot of pressure for me to succeed in a place that wasn't designed for me. And I knew that everything was riding on me being successful. You know, if I was going to be able to provide her with a life that I wanted her to have and that she should have, I knew that I had to get my college degree. So it was this, you know, extreme amount of pressure and responsibility on my shoulders And yet I knew that I was an anomaly at William & Mary and there were not supports that were in place to make sure that I didn't fall through the cracks. And I think similarly, as a Black student on campus, you know, you know that you stick out like a sore thumb. You know, I remember, you know, I met my husband in college who played football and, you know, we would talk about the fact that people would assume he was there only because he could play football, not because he was smart. You know, other peers of mine, we talked about just this feeling that people looked at you and felt like you hadn't earned your spot to be at William & Mary. The assumption was because you were Black, that you hadn't earned your spot to be here. And so it's a lot of weight to carry for you to be both a, a parenting student and a Black student and to feel like, again, how do I move through this environment that doesn't feel like I belong here. And I felt that every day on top of, you know, really the mental exercise every day of how am I going to afford diapers? How am I going to afford childcare? How am I going to keep us in this apartment when I can't make rent next month? How do I afford this book for class when I've got to buy, you know, new clothes for my toddler? And so, you know, that was every day, just the mental exercise of survival on top of a rigorous academic environment where again, you know, everything was riding on me getting that degree. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, so much weight on your shoulders. Yeah. Can you talk about this? Some of the stereotypes and you've kind of referenced some already, some of the stereotypes that we hold about teen parents and then some of the truths behind them. And I feel like you already just shared like this truth without it saying it explicitly around how scrappy and resourceful mm, <laughs> and <yeah>. resilient, like, <laughs> like this ability to figure, which you probably didn't feel this way as you were going through all this, but like this ability to figure out anything that like a privileged white dude would <laughs> never, would right. ne- I mean, they'd never be put in the position first of all. And then secondly, would crumble, I would imagine. I'm making like a huge generalization, but like, let's be honest, (laughs) likely. So what are some of the stereotypes that we hold about teen parents and then the truths behind that, you know, in terms of your own story and then also so many of the parents you've worked with? Yeah. So, I mean, I think one big one is that they're lazy and unambitious and don't want to go to college, don't want to graduate from high school. And, you know, I even in the book talk about the fact that prior to me becoming a teen parent myself, I probably, you know, repeated many of those stereotypes because I think they are ingrained in us through media and through kind of political messaging and all sorts of things really from, you know, a young age. And so the idea that they're lazy and unambitious don't care about their education, huge stereotype that is totally off. I mean, every parent in our program at Generation Hope, every student parent I've talked to across the country is highly motivated to do well because they have this child. There's so much on the line. Yeah, there's so much on the line. And I think any mother can understand this strong desire, no matter how old you are or how you came into motherhood, this strong desire to be able to provide the world to your kids. And that's what I see every day. That's what happened in my situation. I was willing to make, you know, huge sacrifices to ensure that my daughter um, had everything that she needed. And so that's a big one. And I think all of the stereotypes are incredibly damaging because it influences policy. It influences whether or not we're going to put certain resources and supports in place to make sure that um, young parents are successful. Another one, I think kind of thinking more broadly is, you know, when people hear teen mother, they think typically of a black single mom, right? A black young woman. And I talk about in the book that, you know, looking at sheer numbers, there are actually more babies born to white girls in this country than any other population. But when we're looking at who is disproportionately impacted by this, it is uh, young girls of color. And so just kind of understanding the numbers, understanding that a lot of what we've been thinking about when we think about teen pregnancy comes out of legislation, pushes for legislation, that really emerged during the Reagan era around the welfare queen and wanting to reform the welfare system and to make it more difficult for individuals who are on welfare to be able to access resources and support. And in order to do that, they really had to paint this picture, a a negative picture of a black woman who was a mother who was mooching off the system. And that pervasive stereotype has really influenced a ton of policy, not only welfare reform, but other policies that, again, make it very difficult for young mothers to have the supports that they need to stay in school, to have affordable housing, to access childcare for their children. And so these stereotypes are not only off, but often they are incredibly damaging. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. So damaging. And to your point, not only are they untrue, but then the really vicious, nasty cycles that they perpetuate mm-hmm. are like what continues to hold black women back and right. black teen moms back. So in telling your story in your book, it's clear that every day you were just trying to get through, as you mentioned, like get through the next 24 hours. And you had this really precarious balance that was in place that could Like if one thing went wrong, it could all fall apart. And so can you talk about the toll that this took on your school experience and on your mental health during that time? I was, I think there was no room for failure, you know, that, and I mentioned the pressure that I felt every single day and every day it was something new, you know, I may have, okay, great. I made rent this month. Ooh, you know, that's great. The next day it was, now I'm getting a notice from a childcare center saying you're late on your, your tuition payments. So there was always something, there was never, I felt like a day where I could just 
feel at ease and feel like there, you know, the, all the balls were in the air, everything was covered, you know, one ball I would throw in the air, the next ball would drop. And that was constant. And it was incredibly isolating to be a parenting college student. Not only did I not have a community on campus that understood what I was going through, you know, I had wonderful friends and I met my husband, but none of them had any idea, right? Like they're going right. to the calf and I'm going home to cook dinner. And they were like, what? You know, like, yeah. It was just very different. I had to get home. I had to bathe my child. I had to put dinner on the table, read to her and then study through. The and night. then study. Yes. Oh my yeah. gosh. So it was very, you know, we had different experiences and so incredibly isolating and a lot of pressure I think for me, what was important is, and I kind of mentioned this when we talked about what is bringing me joy and excitement right now, I really enjoyed my time with my daughter, Narissa, as much as I could. I remember, you know, I would try to create experiences for her that would be joyful for her. And those brought me joy. Like I remember in the summer, in some of the, it would rain, right? Like out of nowhere, it'd be pouring. I would take her outside and we would run in the rain, you know, Mm, and we would dance in the rain. And those were the times where I felt I could find a little bit of balance in just trying to give her some joy and find some joy for myself. And that's the way I kind of try to keep myself sane. And what my experience reflects is what many young parents are dealing with and parenting college students. And I should say, I wasn't working. I was able to just barely cover my expenses with Pell Grants and loans that allowed me to focus on being a mom and being Mm -hmm. a college student. But most parenting students today, because the cost of college has just skyrocketed, are working. So, you know, if I had to also balance a full or part-time job, I don't know that I would have been able to eke out those moments of joy, you know, that kind of helped me have a little bit of balance. Yeah. Hey, mamas. Okay. As I've been connecting with so many of you in our community recently, I've heard over and over and over again, how overwhelmed exhausted, and worried you are. This pandemic continues to be incredibly relentless and unpredictable, and that is wearing on all of us in so many ways, especially as we send our kids back to school. At the beginning of the pandemic, way, way back in March of 2020, I hosted a free Hope, Happiness, and Mental Health Challenge, and holy cow, over 500 of you participated. This was a place for us to find comfort and connection during a really hard time. So I've been asking around recently to see if you'd like me to bring this challenge back. And the answer has been a very loud and very resounding yes, 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 yes. So I'm bringing it back. I hope that you'll join me September 20th to September 24th for a second round of my totally free Hope, Happiness, and Mental Health Challenge. During this five-day challenge, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about fear and why fear does not get to drive. We'll talk about how to rebuild your relationship with control how to keep returning to who you are, how to feel your feelings, but keep moving through emotion. And I'm going to give you my exact template to help you restore hope every damn day in every damn situation. So like I said, this challenge is totally free and you can sign up by going over to shamelessmom.com slash challenge. We need each other now more than ever. You are not in this alone. I got you. So join me over at shamelessmom.com slash challenge. And I'll see you on September 20th. So when I had Trudy LeBron on, she was talking about her experience and you mentioned being able to get Pell Grants and aid and all these things. And which is like how fantastic and like, as it should be. And she was talking about being, so she had her two children. She was still in high school. She graduated from high school. I'm trying, I don't remember exactly the trajectory if she got her GED or graduated from high school early And then she enrolled in college early and she talks about this experience of going in to meet with a caseworker to basically like prove that she qualified for government support still. Mm. And because there was some question about it and she was told, oh, well, we only qualify this as long as you're in high school, but if you're enrolled in college classes then like, you can't have this anymore. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she was like, to be working at that level, to be ahead of the game in that way as a teen mom of two babies and to be like, just feeling, 
I would imagine, you know, feeling like you're doing like kind of invincible, being able to get ahead on college and then to have someone tell you like, oh, actually we can't, you know, you're not going to get any money. And she talked about like having to make that decision and having that conversation and this like glaring realization that like you have to be out for yourself and you're going to have to figure things out. And to your point around things being precarious, like the rug can be pulled out at any moment and it takes like one thing that you can't control and how emotional, I would imagine there's a trauma element to that, like Mm. to carry that for so long and endure it in different ways to have that rug pulled out in different ways over time. I would imagine there's this trauma element. And so the, the toll on your mental health over time has to be really great. Oh yeah. Feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, You'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You know, I was just talking the other day about a theme in the book around worthiness Mm -hmm. and I was constantly, and it sounds like for Trudy, this is, you know, similar experiences, having to prove that I was worthy of resources. And it yeah. didn't matter how smart I was. It didn't matter how, you know, creative I had been and like trying to piece things together. It didn't matter if I had just like had a milestone of graduating from high school or getting into college, that it was a constant act of I am worthy to be here. I'm worthy to hold this space. I am worthy of this benefit that I'd like to tap into to make sure I can survive, that my daughter can survive and how exhausting that is and how exhausting it was. And that speaks to the stereotypes, right? Those stereotypes, that's a great example of how they manifest themselves in policies and practices that create hurdles. Yeah, to go to college. I mean, less than 2% of teen moms get a degree before age 30. And why is that? Well, by the way, like, let's be really explicit that a person of privilege, so middle-class, upper-class white student, who's not a parent, doesn't ever have to prove themselves, doesn't ever have to prove that they're worthy or deserving or qualified or any, like any of that. Right. Exactly. It's just completely assumed. Yeah. It's, you know, even when you show up in a room as a person of color, there is, you know, I can tell you as a CEO running a nonprofit organization, I have people assume all the time that I'm not the leader of this organization, Mm -hmm. that, you know, if I am, that this is a small hobby, for example, of something that I do when in reality, you know, I've grown this thriving organization over the past 11 years that is really making an impact. And so I think absolutely that, that you have to prove your worthiness. And I had a similar experience where I applied for uh, food supplements, you know, food stamps, they're called different things in different places for my daughter and I, for my family, and was told that because I had a part-time job at Target and they wouldn't count my college courses, that I didn't qualify. And so it disincentivizes, you know, uh, young parents from going to college. So when we look at that less than 2% number, 
it, what's wrapped up in that is all the things we're talking about, these obstacles that are created to make it more difficult for you to go to college and these hurdles and these stereotypes and race and all of those things are kind of wrapped up in that number. Yeah, absolutely. So you've mentioned how expensive it is and how challenging it is. And especially for people that don't have a lot of money in the first place that you're always in this position. And I was a financial aid kid my entire life raised by a single mom. And so mm-hmm. I remember and my mom had, she was a teacher all of her life. So she had like very stable income, just not a lot of extra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but so I, I remember when I went to private high school, private college, or I went to well, private college for everything. So like private schools for all of it. <laughs> and I remember my mom talking about when I was going to go to private, my high school, she was like, if this is the school you choose, we will use every penny I've saved for college in your mm-hmm. first year of high school. And then it's up to you to figure out the rest. Gotcha. And I, at the time being, you know, I was in the eighth grade <laughs> and so I'm like 13 and I'm like, whatever. I just want to go to the school. My friends are right. going to do, so I'll figure it out. And my mom, I mean, and it was, that's really, really stood out to me. Like, you're going to have to figure it out after this first year. This is all the money we have and blah, blah, blah. So there was a lot of figuring out that came with that. Now I will say my mom was incredibly scrappy, resourceful, resilient, like figured out a lot of things with me. And then I had to do a lot of things as well. But when we talk about like this idea around the, how hard it is when there's not a lot of money in the first place, and then you receive financial aid. And it's, I mean, in our case, it was like, just always barely getting there. Like there was always like, we had to write like extra letters to see like, could we get just a tiny bit more? And this was like me in a pretty privileged white girl situation without a child. So can you talk about this financial aid and the expense of trying to raise a child and go to school and the evolution of that. And has it started to change or is it changing? And I know that you're working around that as well. And so you can share that experience. So one thing that's really important to note, and and I mentioned it earlier, is that the the costs of higher ed have really skyrocketed since I went to college, right? 20 years ago. It was really interesting to just like see the math and, you know, do the math and see the numbers. And so, but what hasn't kept up with that pace is financial aid. So Pell Grants, for example, where they used to have much more buying power, they used to cover much more of the college costs. Today, they don't, particularly at a four-year school. And so it's even harder today for someone who's raising a child on their own to go to college and to be able to cover all of those costs. On top of that, you have more costs as a parenting student. So you have childcare. Many times you're living on your own. So you have rent. I talked about, you know, trying to just be able to keep a roof over our heads. Transportation can be huge. So my freshman year, I was commuting 150 miles every day for class. Um, Yeah. Sometimes in the car for four hours, dropping my daughter off with her aunt for childcare and then going and driving up to campus and then doing it all over again in the evening. And so gas and car repairs. So as a parenting student, your costs are high. And financial aid doesn't always take into account the cost of childcare. So you're having to figure this out on top of, you know, maybe you're a low income student already. You now have a child that you're trying to cover the costs for. It can become, you know, impossible sometimes. And many times we see that parenting students drop out of college for that reason. You know, I can't make it all work. And I'm trying even time, you know, I have to work a part time or a full time job in order to cover these costs that doesn't leave enough time for me to go to college and to be able to study. So it can be incredibly difficult and it's even more difficult today than it was when I was in school. So when my son was born, met with our financial advisor and we asked about saving for college versus saving for retirement. And like, we were like, do we do both? How do we do both? Do we pick one over the other? And he said, you know, and this would have been, so my son's almost nine. So this would have been like nine years ago. He said, you know, like the cost of higher ed can't keep inflating at the rate that it is because then it would be such an elitist system. He's like, so that's not going to happen. So by the time your son is 18, something will have changed. So he's like, (laughs) he's like, don't put all your eggs in just the retirement basket. But he's like, honestly, like look out for yourself because, and you and your husband both figured things like my husband and I both had to 
figure out a lot of things on our own for college. And so mm-hmm. he's like, you guys both figured it out. Your kid can figure it out. Like there's going to, things are going to evolve. The system can't keep doing what it's doing. And here we are nine years later <laughs> to your point, like it's still doing that. Like it is only yes. becoming more elitist, more privileged, less attainable, less accessible. And that's not like across the board. There are some things that have happened. There are schools that are doing, you know, different kinds of options that are more inclusive and mm-hmm. um, creating opportunities for students of different socioeconomic backgrounds. But overall, like I went to Gonzaga, it's definitely not getting cheaper no, no, year. And I would all. imagine the same for um, William and Mary. Like yes. it's not getting cheaper. No, we're or not even like stabilizing. Plateau. Yeah. We're not seeing a plateau. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, oh my goodness. It's yeah. I absolutely hear all that and it's, yeah, it's bothersome for sure. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how you work with the families that you work with, the parents that you support because of these limitations, because the system continues to be, continues to evolve in this way that makes it more difficult. Mm -hmm. So the obstacles are both emotional and financial. And so our program at Generation Hope really seeks to address those obstacles and kind of infuse supports into the lives of our scholars that help them overcome those obstacles. So through emotional support, we have a wonderful, robust mentoring program where we're matching our students with caring folks in the community who really are cheerleaders for them to make it to the graduation stage. We have just an incredible program team of hope coaches that work with both the mentor and the student and helping them not just navigate higher ed, but navigate life. Cause you know, anything could come up from a domestic violence situation to I'm going to be evicted from my home as well as I need to pick classes for next semester. So we're really there to help our scholars through anything that might come their way. Then I think the other important thing about the emotional support that we're able to provide is I talked about how isolating it can be to be a parenting college student. Our program, you know, brings together 120 other parenting college students who are going through the same thing that you're going through, who can understand what it's like to be parenting and working and going to school. Some are on your campus and you wouldn't have found them if it weren't for being a part of our program. And so that village that's that like, is that's so a important. huge, huge yes. gift. Exactly. And so they can really lean on each other and be a community for each other. We do trainings and workshops and fun social events throughout the year to build those bonds among our mentors and among that community of scholars. And then tuition support and emergency funding and um, collecting items like diapers and high chairs and laptops from the community and distributing those to scholars. That really helps to cover the financial needs that our scholars might have or contribute to helping with those costs. And what we really do is we're a wraparound program. So there's really nothing our scholars could come to us about that we wouldn't be able to kind of say, okay, let's figure this out together. So for example, we have DACA students, dreamers in our program. We've worked with them a lot through the uncertainty of DACA over the past several years to help them stay in school and kind of navigate that uncertainty. As I mentioned, domestic violence, we've gone to court with our scholars to support them through getting a protective order, for example. And so that's really important because, you know, with parenting students, anything could derail you from being able to stay in school. And then we also recognize that there's this very powerful symbiotic relationship between the parent's success and their child's success that I'm sure, you know, you and your listeners understand, which is like, how can I concentrate in a college classroom if I feel like my child is not getting the education that they need to be successful, or if I don't know what I'm going to be able to provide for dinner tonight. And so we started our children's program about three years ago, and that program simultaneously helps our scholars' children get ready for kindergarten. The children of teen parents enter school at lower levels of school readiness, which is not surprising given all the stuff we've talked about around, you know, just not having the resources and support as a parent that you need for your child. And so we have a home visiting program that allows us to do developmental screenings and assessments and build home libraries for our families by bringing brand new books into the home each month. We do, uh, we set goals for parent and child, and we use a curriculum called Parents as Teachers to help them really become their child's first teacher. We have uh, monthly dinners where parents get to lean on each other and work with together on solving parenting challenges. And we provide monetary support monthly for them to access high quality childcare. So all of that is happening while you're in college to help kind of cover the bases. And what has been really 
kind of evident in the work that we've done. You know, we have supported our scholars at 20 different two and four year schools across the country, I'm sorry, across the region. And what we've seen is that higher ed just really is not addressing the needs of parenting students. And we've talked to a lot of, you know, college presidents and higher ed folks across the country. And that is true no matter, you know, where you are going to college in the United States. It's, it's just not, parenting students is not on the radar of higher ed. And so now, as I mentioned earlier, we're doing work both through a policy and advocacy agenda that'll focus on federal and local policy, but also working directly with colleges and universities to help them build family-friendly campuses that better support this population. Oh my gosh, it's incredible work. Thank you. Incredible work. You mentioned in the book, you talk about the racist systems and policies that keeps parents of color from entering and from graduating from college. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Like on top of that, we don't support parents who are in college. Then there's, as we mentioned in your situation, then there's these added layers when you add Mm -hmm. in race. And so can you talk about that a little bit about systems and policies? Yeah, those systems and policies start really early for children of color. So, you know, you could even get into a maternal mortality rates, right? And and looking at what we're seeing in our health system in terms of how Black mothers, for example, are um, supported in their health care and how that manifests in a child's life from a very early age. I think I mentioned, you know, early childhood, having high quality early childhood is not something that is really available to our families because it costs so much, right? And we're seeing in in the pandemic, childcare has already been, you know, in crisis prior to COVID-19 and how the pandemic has just really brought so much of that to light. But parenting students and particularly those of color without resources are really, they're not able to provide their little ones with that high quality early childhood experience that really sets that child up for success later on in life. We also see discriminatory housing policies that have been in place since forever, right? Where redlining and other practices have really created pockets in our community that are cut off from opportunity. Poor schools, not being able to send your child to a school that has, you know, great resources. And, you know, I don't live far from Baltimore. They had to close schools a couple days this summer because of, you know, not having air conditioning. And, you know, you think about those are schools that are predominantly serving uh, students of color in Baltimore City. Um, So not having just basic things that are necessary for students to go to school, never mind to be successful in school. Things like mass incarceration particularly impacts communities of color, Black men in particular, and Mm -hmm. many of those men are fathers. And what does that do to a family when a father is taken away from their child? So those are just some examples that happen even before a student of color enters a college classroom. There are significant hurdles to even getting into a college classroom and getting on campus from the racial wealth gap that makes college seem you know, impossible or unattainable mm-hmm. for many families, black and brown families, because how do you afford it? Mm-hmm. And then of course, getting into college You know, I talk in the book about particularly for black males who have their college completion rates are really daunting. And one of the things that I talk about is, you know, we have teen dads in our program who have shared that they didn't have anyone in their community who had ever gone to college. And so how do you be successful in an environment where you're not only a first generation college student, but, you know, there really is no point of reference or support system for you personally to kind of make it to the graduation stage. So there are many things, policies and systems that are in place, even, you know, way before higher ed comes into the picture that make higher ed and college feel like it's, you know, a dream that can never be realized. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all that. Cause I think that's, it's really important that we see that broader picture. I think that that's, it's so significant. Hmm. Who needs to read pregnant girl and what do you want readers to take away? I wrote pregnant girl. I remember when I first met with my publisher and they said like, who's the audience? And I said, I have two audiences. And they said, no, (laughs) (laughs) you need to pick one. And I really felt strongly that I Hmm. wanted pregnant girl to be one for anyone who's ever been impacted by teen pregnancy, whether, you know, they experienced it themselves, they had a friend or a cousin or a family member, they're the child of a teen mother. I wanted it to be a story that honored their journeys. 
and help to tell their stories. And then the second audience that I had for the book are people who are in a position of power where they can do something about what's happening right now when it comes to teen parents and teen pregnancy. And I want those folks to walk away saying, I know what I can do. And when I say people in a position of power, I think all of us are in a position yeah, I of power. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, you're not talking about like Congress. You're talking right. about like yeah. anyone who holds privilege in any way. Anyone who holds privilege and anyone who could potentially be a gatekeeper. And yeah. that's really all of us, whether you're a teacher in a school, whether you're a mom and, you know, at your church, there's an opportunity for you to get involved in something that supports um, teen mothers or start something that supports teen mothers. All of us have an opportunity to create change that needs to happen. And so I'm hoping that people will read the book and say, I know what I want to do to create change in this space. Absolutely. How are you currently showing up as a shameless mom? You know, I I love, like I said, I love this podcast and what you all are just kind of like unpacking with shameless mom. And I think honestly, I probably was a shameless mom back in college when I really yes. think about it. Amen. You know, like I was, I love what you're talking about. And like, I didn't intentionally do that, but I'm thinking the fact that I was willing with a three month old baby to go to college. And I remember like being, you know, the fog that you're in as a new mom and I was nursing and having to pump in the bathroom and like all sorts of craziness. But I was determined to get my college degree and I had that goal and I didn't let go of that goal. So I think I've always been a shameless mom, whether I knew it or not. I think today that's kind of ingrained in me. There's really nothing that I feel like I can't do. If I'm excited about something, I want to pursue it. And the way that I look at it is it enriches the lives of my children. You know, my daughter now, because she spent the first four years of her life on a college campus, she now, you know, is finishing up college herself that, you know, she knows that there's, there's nothing she can't do, right. If she puts her mind to it, cause she watched mommy do that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, now her four other siblings, they know mommy runs an organization. They know mommy wrote a book. They know mommy sometimes is on the news talking to people about the issues that she's passionate about. And so I think it enriches their lives. And it says to them, you guys can do the same thing. So that's something that I've seen at play in my own life in terms of being a shameless mom. And I'm hoping, you know, that is something that your listeners can kind of hold dear, just knowing that when you have that purpose, right. And that goal, it enriches the lives of your children. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Nicole, you have been so generous with your time and your vulnerability and your story and all of your wisdom. I'm so, so grateful. Can you tell people where they can find you, where they can get the book, Pregnant Girl, where they can um, support Generation Hope and anything else? Yeah. So Pregnant Girl, you can find anywhere books are sold. And as a busy mom, I can tell you, if you want to listen to the audio book, there is no judgment. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. I am like always pushing audio books on people, especially podcast listeners. It's like the perfect solution for reading books. (laughs) Exactly. So you can also get the audio version. Um, And uh, so anywhere books are sold. Also, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Nicole Lynn Lewis. And Generation Hope, you can find at generationhope.org. And there are tons of ways to get involved, whether you live in the DC region or anywhere in the country. Amazing. Oh my gosh, Nicole, thank you so much. I want everyone to go check out. I want you to all get the book, listen to the audio, buy the hard copy. (laughs) Remember that you're supporting Nicole every time you do that. And then also I want people to go check out generationhope.org where we can learn how we can support this organization. You're doing such incredible work. And thank you. Thank you so much for being here to share all the gifts that you're sharing with the world. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, mamas, before I let you go, please make sure you're signed up for our upcoming totally free five-day hope, happiness, and mental health challenge. Pop over to shamelessmom.com slash challenge, and you can join us for free starting on September 20th. Get yourself signed up today so you get all the information in advance by going to shamelessmom.com slash challenge. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued 
over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.